Hi, this is Alex Roman, Managing Editor for Metro Magazine, and welcome to Metrospectives, a podcast about public transportation, the private motor coach industry, and all things mobility. My guest today is CEO of the Greater Dayton RTA, Mark Donaghy. Donaghy, who is set to retire in April, joins me to discuss his 45 years in the industry, the important role transit plays in bringing equity to communities around the nation, his post-retirement plans, and much more. Now, here's my talk with Mark. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Really appreciate it. How's uh, how's everything going today? It's going great, Alex. It's good to talk to you. The sun is out here in Dayton. It's actually about 55 degrees, so uh, life is good for the moment. Excellent, excellent. So you, you've had a long career, and, that, and that's why I wanted to talk to you. Um, very well known throughout the industry. Uh, I believe it's, it's 45 years that... Uh, We've marked here before your retirement. It is. This is the 45th year, and uh, <laughs> I guess that's that's enough for anybody, right? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is uh, you know why why did you decide now was the time? Is it just uh, you know a good time to, to get out? You know, part of that has to do with kind of who I am. The people that know me really well know that I've never been a clock watcher, and uh, uh, my wife's used to eating dinner around eight o'clock at night, and uh, I had always said that at some point, probably at age 65, I would, if nothing else, give it up full time so I could spend more time with her. That's that's great. Um, so, I mean, let's let's talk about. I guess let's go to the beginning. Um, 45 plus years ago, you you got into public transit. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know how that happened and and what about it kind of kept you uh, kept you there, got its teeth in you. Sure. You know, I bet you'll find that many of us would answer the question in the same way. We may have all started in, in different ways. In my case, uh, I was working for a family-owned grocery store chain in Omaha, Nebraska. I'd even worked as a night manager for them. And uh, like a lot of family-owned businesses back in the 70s, uh, they went belly up. And just prior to my departure there, uh, I had literally answered an ad in the paper for part-time school bus drivers mm-hmm. and uh, went in and applied for the job, got the job. And uh, so when the grocery store closed, I literally went into the dispatcher the next morning and said, you know, how can I get some more hours while I decide what to do with my life? Uh, and from from there, kind of never looked back. And I think uh, the, the thing that kind of drew me and, and certainly has kept me is, you know, the business we've all been in, you know, it's one where no two days are ever the same. Mm-hmm. There are constant challenges. Now, a lot of them are negative, but uh, but there's always something and there's always some exciting possibility, whether it's service related or equipment related. Uh, and as time went by, I just kind of, you know, I fell in love with what we do. And at the end of the day, uh, and I still do this to every single day, I spend some time at at least in the afternoon in our downtown hub here in Dayton, talking to customers and the bus drivers that I don't get to see a lot of. And talking to customers really reinforces, you know, that mission of what we're all about. And so that's kind of what has held me in it all these years. It's been great for me and my family. We've worked in six different cities and, uh, but, but it's been a great run. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Reading about your background and, and you were involved in, in some um, busing issues at, in, at, in Omaha, 
as well as uh, some issues there in Dayton as far as ensuring um, equity for, for people. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how big of a role um, equity or public transit plays in, in kind of the, the equity issues going on today? I'm happy to. You know, I've, I've often said people have asked me about the, the desegregation that we did in Omaha. And uh, I was literally there on day one. Uh, my, my run was number 108. And I, I re what strikes me from those first days and weeks was they were really, I, I see them as lessons in hate. <laughs> uh, there was so much antagonism about what we were doing. Uh, we had a fleet of 250 brand new buses and yet the sheriff's department was pulling over buses every morning the first week doing what they claimed were safety checks. And what they were really doing was basically uh, creating a hellacious problem for on-time performance. Right. of that service. And I was there for approximately four years and uh, it was a great education for me and the best and worst in people uh, in that situation. You know, transit, of course, is very, very similar in that way. Uh, in all the cities I've worked in, and I know most, of, especially the urban areas around this country, you know, really transit serves as kind of a bridge for people, especially lower income people who are trying to make a better life and uh, find their way out of poverty. That's what we do in, in most US cities. I know here, two thirds of our 30,000 daily riders are going to and from work. That's what they do. Uh, so for us, it's all about access to jobs like in most systems. And we've had some issues here as well in the suburbs, a suburb named uh, Beaver Creek, mm -hmm. which is to the east of Dayton. It's near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, they literally wrote a city ordinance uh, <laughs> that the first paragraph sounded really wonderful and the next 12 pages were every barrier you can imagine to make it difficult for people like me to extend service into that community. Now, we, we were there on one major thoroughfare, but we wanted to extend service uh, to an area where it had a mall and a community college and a number of developments that were prime for people, especially wanting entry level jobs. So in 2009, literally at the request of the chamber, I met with some people out there uh, and wanted to start service. We ran into this ordinance. And from there, it was a five-year battle uh, that involved uh, a, a local group here called Leaders for Equality and Action in Dayton. They're a faith-based group of churches from all, literally all over the region, both suburban and urban. Uh, and the reason they were involved was our research showed that uh, if we alone went after this situation and tried to you know, approach it for what we believed it was, we would not prevail likely because we were not an effective party. So we really basically needed the public, the folks that would use the service or their representatives to take this on. Well, this lead group did, they took it on as a, their primary issue for a few years and they brought in advocates for basic legal equality. And they literally, uh, I thought, did genius level work. Uh, they filed a Title VI complaint with Federal Highway Administration. And there were a lot of people, even at Federal Transit, that said, why did it go to Federal Highway? Well, the city of Beaver Creek wasn't getting any Federal Transit money, but they were getting lots of Federal Highway. Right. So it was a very intelligent move. It took literally about four years before we finally got a decision. It was actually historical. It was the first 
Title VI finding in the history of Federal Highway on an issue like this. And uh, so it was, a, it, was, it was big in that way, but bigger in the fact that uh, uh, we basically, our goal was call this bluff and, and try to make something happen. So it finally ended and uh, on a very uh, dark morning on a Sunday, well, you know, transit, you know, we, we start everything new on a Sunday morning, <laughs> this world. Uh, so the very first bus was a 6.15 a.m. bus. I drove that bus uh, into Beaver Creek, into the first stop, and there was a big media event. So it was, it was a very rewarding thing, but I have literally binders of, they're just full of some of the, the worst back and forth we had with some of the folks in the public out there and, and some of the best. There were local residents in Beaver Creek that came to their council meetings and spoke in our favor. But uh, in the end, you know, we prevailed. So I, I think it all goes back to that whole idea of the bridge and, you know, trying to get people uh, out of poverty. And I think you see it all over this country. You know, a lot of the new jobs in our country, they're not in the urban core often. They're on the beltways. They're out in green fields. Uh, in our area, we have a huge logistics park by our airport, mm -hmm. constant demands for more and more service. And most of those jobs are lower paying entry level jobs. So as transit operators, you know, we've, we've just in our heads got to grapple. How do we do that? How do we finance it? And how do we serve them, you know, in a better way? But so equity is uh, kind of by default. And I found myself in situations, I would say here in Dayton, I was really fortunate to have a board and elected officials in the city of Dayton and Montgomery County who absolutely supported our efforts to get that project done uh, and, and have supported us ever since. So uh, it's, uh, I, I take a lot of pride in equity being an important role that transit provides in the community. And we've seen people from the very first day, a young man got on that bus at 6.15 and said, I've been walking a mile and a half every day across a freeway bridge to get to my job at Walmart there. And, uh, and he was so thrilled. So, so there's some reward in it as well. Yeah. And it, and, you know, I guess with everything going on, I mean, how do you feel uh, transit has kind of addressed the equity issues, um, you know, through the pandemic and, and, you know, moving forward as we, as we hopefully are starting to see a uh, finish line somewhere way out there. I, I think, a great example is our local example here in Dayton. Everybody's approached the pandemic differently, I think. Uh, we decided early on that we were gonna at least make an attempt to continue to run full service levels from day one of the pandemic. Uh, we did that. Interestingly, I have a graph here somewhere. It, we track our ridership like everybody else and then we track the national average. So the national average has been down about uh, I guess it's been about 64% over the time period. We've only been down 36. So, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously moving more people, but the message that, and we've been using this message locally and in our state legislature recently for the budget is to say, there's a reason for that. The people that use our services are people in essential jobs in healthcare, retail, and logistics. They needed to be at work. They needed us to be there. So there was transit once again, you know, making an equity difference, you know, in our in our community here, and I'm sure elsewhere. Uh, plus, obviously, running full levels of service helped us with the distancing aspects of that. But uh, it was fascinating to watch that our ridership didn't go down much. What we lost were our choice riders, probably, right. uh, and basically everyone else we knew 
uh, as I said at, at a press conference at the health department one day, you know, we're hauling people who are doing jobs that a lot of folks don't want to do. And yet, you know, they're lacking PPE and they're lacking good access that we've got to work hard to give them that. Right. Yeah, and as we kind of mentioned at the top, um, you know, 40, 45 years uh, in the industry. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the biggest changes that have occurred uh, during your time and, and, you know, sort of how the public perception of transit has changed over that, over that period, if at all? Sure. Uh, I'm going to date myself here. Power steering was a huge change. <laughs> in the 1970s, uh, several of the cities I worked in had only a handful of buses with power steering. So uh, uh, it, it's hard to imagine in today's world when you look at the buses we operate today. Uh, but th th that was a huge change. Electronic destination signs, I always go back to that. I come from the era of the old rural curtain signs. Right. Uh, which made it difficult, you know, in, in this, one of the, if you ever wanted to change something or change a route, those curtains had to literally uh, be changed by a shop that was able to actually add a sign to one of those. And uh, it, it sounds like a little thing, but it was huge. And then technology, obviously, you know, uh, uh, I joke with our team here sometimes that, you know, technology, when I started was a pencil with an eraser, you know, we didn't, we didn't have computers really until the early 80s and then they were the these big mini systems with workstations and uh, right. not like what you have today with all the video and audio systems you know the CAD systems and our dispatches and then how that all translated to real time you know and the apps for our customers you know they now see every bus just like we see it those mm -hmm. to me have been some of the greatest the technology ones have been great uh, I always think back to, you know, low floor buses hit around the year 2000. And I used to work with one of the, uh, I used to run the system in Northern Kentucky. And at the same time, Paul Jablonski was running the system in Cincinnati and, and, uh, and the advent of low floor buses, Paul was just adamant. He didn't want those damn things because, you know, you lose seats basically right. with the low floor bus. And then that was classic Paul, but I'm like, Paul, it's coming. And I, and I think it's, it, it's going to be here to stay. Now on the flip side, what I like most about low floor buses is they eliminated all the mechanical issues that uh, our systems always had with the old style wheelchair lifts, basically made that problem literally disappear. But, and I think through all of it, so, you know, I've, I've seen a great deal, you know, I've gone from kind of carbon paper to this electronic uh, earth that we're on today. But it's been really great to see how fast the technology evolved. And most importantly, that most of it in the last decade has been targeted at making the service better for the customers, which I really like, not just to make our lives easier. Not, you know, and how it's related to how transit has kind of evolved to me. Uh, in my early days, you know, there were still a lot of the, uh, the, the prior generation in the business. Uh, they, they thought paratransit was really just an annoyance uh, everything they did in their thinking was big bus on a street, you know, on a fixed schedule, starts downtown, goes to a point uh, on a radial system. And, and that's all we know how to do. So that's all we're, we're going to do. Right. I, I think today what you see is just this much better understanding by the people in my seat across the country that, you know, what our country needs today it is a network of services that address community needs. And, you know, they can be tailored 
to whatever a corridor or an individual community needs. So it's anything from bikes and scooters like we've done here in Dayton. We've been active and we're actually part owners of the bike share system here. Okay. And we're involved with SPIN, our scooter operator here in Dayton, all the way to heavy rail in some communities, in some corridors. I think it has to be an embracing of that. And then even the TNCs, I mean, we embrace them all here. We have Uber contracts with Uber and Lyft to do what we call connect on demand service in areas that have either, I, I would say they're either underserved or unserved period. Right. And we've given them some access to service uh, with connections to our big bus system. So all of that to me is, I think is the, the better way that transit has evolved. And we're starting to see that, you know, in, the, in these new jobs, especially these logistic park jobs, lots of night shifts, weekend shifts, you know, we've got to get out of this weekday mentality. A lot of our demand is nights and weekends. Right. Uh, and in our redesign effort, that's something that we hope to implement here, a much more robust schedule that addresses those needs. Yeah. And I don't know if you've, um, you've had time to reflect or if you're the reflective type where you kind of, you know, are, are taking it in as, as you're moving forward. Um, but, you know, have you had time to reflect on your, on your um, efforts there in, in Dayton? And, and, and if so, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe what some of your, um, you know, biggest accomplishments or, or things that you're most proud of uh, during your tenure there? Yeah, you know, it, the last year or two, as I thought, I'm, I'm getting closer to this and I'm probably going to go ahead with the retirement. I've been thinking quite a bit about it. And uh, I would say, first and foremost, they're not my accomplishments. You know, we, we really believe in the team here. Uh, and uh, that's just the way we are. We, we operate uh, from the senior staff on down in that way. And we truly believe that every person here from the janitor to, to me is equally important. So all of the projects uh, I've been involved here have been really great team efforts. And 15 years ago, the biggest issue here was a financial stability issue which we were able to correct. It took us about two years to get our financial house in order. I'd say beyond that, there were a couple of big projects for us that have made a difference. Uh, our downtown transit center was something that had been talked about for years, uh, but never got off the ground. And associated with that was a problem in our, our primary area of stops was an intersection where we would double park buses throughout the day. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not good for traffic. It was not good for commerce. And the sidewalks were jam-packed with people constantly. Uh, in 2009, we completed the 12 million project to build the transit center here. Basically emptied the other intersection, but it's, it's literally half a block away. So it's still in the heart of downtown. And that facility sees about 1,600 buses a day. Uh, it works extremely well. So that was a big one. Uh, I would say uh, our trolley bus replacement project, which was, uh, which was quite challenging uh, because, you know, there just aren't a lot of trolley buses in this nation. There's only five of us operations that have them. Right. Uh, and then wondering how we would go through the replacement. Uh, in our case, we really leveraged this idea that, you know, we call it next gen. If you go to Europe, uh, they use the term in motion charging. So we decided that we wanted more than just an alternate power unit. We wanted a, a power unit that would let us extend service off wire uh, without adding infrastructure because obviously it's so expensive. Right. So our next gen bus goes 20 miles off wire 
it can go 50 miles an hour with a full load of people on it, uh, as opposed to the prior technology we had with our old Skoda fleet, which was, that's a European bus from the Czech Republic, for mm -hmm. those not used to them. And uh, the Skodas had a battery rack uh, that might get you three miles an hour if there wasn't a hill involved and get you around an accident or some little detour. Now, these purpose-built dual modes, the next gen, the 20 miles allowed us to extend our one of our primary routes, uh, the full 20 miles. It goes out to near the Air Force Base and Wright State University. And that entire route went from diesel to trolley. Uh, and it, it, it's just, it's been a great project. And I think down the road, we'll, you'll probably see more and more movement towards electric because of that. Uh, but just the buses alone, that project was about $60 million. So it, it took not only a lot of engineering design, we had four prototype buses in 2014, and we spent several years literally just testing them. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a hybrid relationship between Keepy Electric, who's more well-known in Europe, right. and the Gillig Corporation. Uh, and that partnership gave us, basically, we use Gillig CNG chassis, and we use it to accommodate our weight on the roof for our electrical components. And it's, it's worked out really well. And on the, the little things, CEOs know a lot about the fact that the rest of my fleet, big bus fleet is Gillig, you know, keeping those other components, a lot of the driveline components and the braking consistent with our other fleets helped keep the inventory cost down too. That one has been a great one. We received our final bus a few months ago and we've got them all in service as of today. Uh, and they're doing really well. So that we're really excited about. Now we're looking at uh, where can we do more off-wire work uh, and extend some of the routes. We just established one recently uh, to a grocery store to the north of town. And that route was one that because it was trolley had to turn short in the urban area. So it was giving people who had no access to a good grocery store, uh, you know, access basically 21 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's cool. And there's one more I think I'd really great. I mentioned earlier what we call Connect on Demand. It was uh, it started as the brainchild of Brandon Policicchio, our chief customer and business development officer, uh, who used to be one of our operations people. And, and his idea was to identify these zones that are underserved or unserved and find some option. You know, like many transit systems, we had some areas where we literally would have one or two buses in the morning cycle through an area that's way out in the exurbs, come to downtown and then go back in the evening. But the service was so poor, it wasn't well ridden. So we took one of those to start with. Uh, our first contract was with uh, Uber or Lyft, I'm sorry, Lyft was our first. Uh, and now we use Lyft, Uber and a local TNC here as well. Well, that service became so popular and if the people that used it, they, they gave them 24 seven access within the zone and then if they connected to our big bus service in a city called Miamisburg, we subsidized their entire TNC ride. Right. Uh, we're carrying thousands more people. We're doing it for a lot less money. And then we took the little bits we saved from the big bus operations out there and literally added that to our circulator operation here in downtown Dayton. So to me, I would say that was another great one because it delivered certainly uh, good service. And the final thing I'd say is uh, we have a really great management team here. And I think assembling some of those, we've, uh, we like to affectionately say that Columbus and Cincinnati are our farm teams. Uh, we've been able to bring some people in from those systems. 
that are doing great work here and we're giving them opportunities to shine. Uh, so for me, you know, that's been it. Dayton itself, it's, it's a classic Rust Belt city. Uh, General Motors packed up and left, Mead Paper, National Cash Register. And it's been reinventing itself as more a research hub, especially in aerospace with the base mm -hmm. close by. GE Aviation is investing here and so are others. And so the city's kind of in a renaissance right now. So it's been exciting for us to be a part of that. Yeah, and, and you mentioned, I mean, we didn't discuss it when you're kind of talking about the things that changed, but I think one of the big changes in public transit seems to be uh, its ability to be uh, more nimble. Um, you know, have you seen that in the last few years and, and, and maybe in some of the ways that uh, Dayton's been able to put out service for, for its customers? I absolutely have. I think it was a slow start. It, it kind of reminded me of how, uh, and I said earlier, you know, <laughs> decades ago, people like me, everybody just hated paratransit. And I think part of it was they didn't understand it, you know, and five years ago, everybody hated the TNCs. And it's like, oh my God, they're going to come after our business. You know, they're going to try it. Well, obviously there's no way they could replace what we do. But now I, what I really like is this, you see that we're all embracing it. You know, people like Gary Thomas down in Dallas, big system area, they were, they were early adopters. Brad Miller in St. Petersburg, you know, may have had the very first really good coordinated TNC project. Right. But, but I think it is an evolution of the mindset of transit that we need to be more flexible in our thinking and in service delivery. You know, what do people really need? These bike share systems, they're great first and last mile we found here. And some people said, well, you might lose some of your regular riders. And I said, if we do, it'll be few. But for some people, it actually, they make their whole commute on the bike share system. So great. Right. And I think uh, if, if it's one thing that's given me some pride in the industry, it's that we've kind of opened our minds to these new and different ways of thinking and, uh, and looking at what we do as more of a network of mobility options, you know, as opposed to that, that big bus lumbering down Main Street. Right. And, and more of a willingness to kind of be on the bleeding edge, right? I mean, back in the day, you know, people weren't jumping in to do CNG. They wanted to see if someone else would do it first. You and, better and, believe it. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. Very risk-averse industry. And, you know, I would rather, and we've learned that here. I mean, not everything we've tried here has worked, but uh, I'd rather try a few things, you know, uh, and see a few fail and then, but let the successes run and then support those. Right. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit, of, well, I guess, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about what's going on today without we'll talk about um, COVID and its impact on public transit. And I think moving forward, as, as hopefully we start to come out of this and, and more people at least are going back to work and, and, and traveling around town a little bit more, um, you know, how do you think kind of post pandemic, um, you know, reflect on public transit as, as we look ahead? Well, I, you know, I don't think there's, a, there should be more people in my camp on this, but I, I think there's a real mistaken rush to judgment that there's going to be this new normal that's going to be so radically different uh, that, that, and it's going to be negative for transit. I, for one, I really don't believe that. I think if you really just look at the history of public transit itself, you'll see a kind of a roller coaster effect over the decades, if you go back a hundred years and just look at all of those. Right. Uh, so I'm one of the people that really believes, uh, I'm not gonna rush, 
to make any huge changes, especially reductions. I don't want to do that in the services we provide. Uh, I really think we should all wait until 2022. We really should, <clears throat> you know, give give things a chance to get back to some semblance of normal. And I think, sure, there'll be some minor changes, but I, you know, I think cities like Dayton, and I'm sure other cities are seeing it as well. We've still got brand new investments in downtown going forward. People aren't putting them on the shelf. New housing units are going up right now. Uh, I live in downtown and uh, there's three new ones going up just within walking distance of where I live. So I think let's, we don't want to rush to, you know, to, to make a bad conclusion. I, I think what's going to happen is, you know, we'll come back uh, in different ways. And I think maybe we'll get refocused, I hope, on really making these systems better. You know, we've got an administration now that we know is supportive of what we do. So my vision is kind of those who haven't already done so are going to be looking for ways to do more high frequency service, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, in the in the major corridors and maybe, you know, making that move to 24 hour. You know, we're probably at this point 22 hours a day with some of the service we run right. to our logistics park, even though our last kind of a pulse is at a little after midnight, uh, which for a city our size, that's still probably better service than some have. Mm -hmm. but, but I'm really looking forward to more and more folks uh, focusing on that. And then, yeah, embrace whatever the new normal really is. But I don't think it's going to be uh, downtowns turning into wastelands and no one ever coming back you know, to these office buildings. I, I think we're going to see some people come back. Yeah, it, it, I think it'll be interesting to see, um, it's, especially with work uh, offices and that sort of thing. I think um, you think nobody wants to come back, but I think a lot of people would like, kind of like that going into the office and, and are used to it and would, would want to get back to it as soon as they can. You can only eat so many ham and cheese sandwiches, you know, in your home. Right. You know, people are probably missing missing their lunch haunts. Uh, you know, we well, we've stayed completely through, so we we make a point of trying, especially the locally owned restaurants, uh, do our best to keep them in business. But uh, but you know, I I think that's a reality we're seeing. Uh, the other one I think that's great for people in the business is, you know, all the old folks like me are leaving. There seems to be just kind of a wave of us retiring off. A lot of us that came in in the 70s and 80s and even mm -hmm. 90s at this point. So uh, you're welcome, you know, Gen X. We're, we're <laughs> provided some great opportunities. Uh, and the other thing, I think what it's doing for the, the market for transit CEOs, you can see it, it's driving up the salary numbers. So, uh, and I think that's great. And what I love about it is, you know, there's a lot of great young people uh, that are either CEOs now or, you know, one step from it. I know one really well. My oldest son is the CEO of Seatran uh, in Vancouver, Washington. Right. Uh, they're doing some really cool things out there and have won national recognition. Uh, and I think that generation, you know, they're going to be great. And I, and I wish them all the best. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, moving forward, I know uh, for many in the industry, it, it's, it's never goodbye. Um, you know, <laughs> always be back in some form. Um, you know, what's your plans post-retirement? So, you know, uh, I've gone back and forth on that. I, I, if, what I probably, I've been evaluating a couple different options. One, of course, would be to do a little consulting. I know this, that I, will, I don't want to be one of these folks that I've seen 
who retires and then works more in retirement. Right. So I will That's be part of whatever I do, but I'm absolutely going to focus first on, uh, I've got narrowed down to a few things that I'm kind of really passionate about that aren't transit related mm-hmm. and dedicating some time uh, to volunteer in those areas. One being Habitat. I'm a big fan of what Habitat does. Great. Uh, so definitely going to put some time into that. Uh, obviously, we're looking forward when we can to doing more traveling. Uh, and then if I do some consulting, it'll, it'll be a little bit If one of my friends in the industry says, Hey, could you help me? You, you better believe I'll be there to help. Right. And plans to stay there in Dayton that's grown on you. It's going to keep you there. We, we will be not far away. Uh, we have a little place in the country. It's on the Kentucky side of the Ohio river. Uh, and it's, uh, we enjoy it. We're kayakers. So we have access, we can actually paddle out to the Ohio and, uh, Oh, nice. It's a very quiet place, but it's only literally an hour door to door from here. So I'll be connected here still. And uh, But uh, I don't want to be in my successor's way either. I don't want to be seen as, <laughs> as a problem. You know, he's going to, he's got a great, uh, I think he's got a great plan for how he's going to move things forward here. And Bob Rosinski his name. He's a great guy. He's been in the business about 30 years. Uh, and uh, And the last thing I want to do is be seen as being, in the way or you know in the shadows so uh, i think some separation will be good uh but i'll certainly stay in touch right well great mark it was really great chatting with you thanks for everything you've done for the industry and 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 best of luck in the future and and hope to see you soon well thanks so much alex i mean the industry's been super great to me and my family and uh and uh, i know will be for many others so thanks again i look forward to staying in touch with everybody Thanks for listening to Metrospectives, a podcast by Metro Magazine. Be sure to check out all the latest industry news at metromagazine.com and follow us on social media with links down in the show description.